Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. President Biden felt the nation needed a wake-up call when it came to democracy and on one man who he thinks might be its biggest threat. The lead starts right now. Will we put partisanship aside and put country first? I say we must and we will. Joe Biden's message today using the storied political legacy of John McCain to make his case against threats to democracy and Donald Trump in a state where Team Trump pulled out all the stops and some cyber ninjas to try to steal the electoral votes. Plus, unmitigated disaster. That's how one House Republican aide today described the first impeachment inquiry hearing. One star Republican witness even saying current evidence does not support articles of impeachment. Was anything achieved for the House Republican cause today? And America's mental health crisis. Some of the best minds coming together today to try to figure out why so many, especially young Americans, are so unhappy and what we can do to fix it. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We're going to start with the breaking news. Just moments ago, President Biden wrapped up a speech in Arizona, a battleground state, with a warning to the country, one that is at the very center of his 2024 re-election pitch. And I've always been clear, democracy is not a partisan issue. It's an American issue. And there's something dangerous happening in America now. There's an extremist movement that does not share the basic beliefs in our democracy the MAGA movement. Their extreme agenda, if carried out, would fundamentally alter the institutions of American democracy as we know it. This is the latest in a series of direct attacks on Donald Trump and the MAGA movement, and it comes at a moment of political uncertainty for President Biden. Sources say many senior Democrats have been calling for the president to spend more time directly attacking Trump in an effort to energize both voters and donors. Regardless of party, that means respecting free and fair elections, accepting the outcome, win or lose. It means you can't love your country only when you win. (laughs) Democracy means rejecting and repudiating political violence. Regardless of party, such violence is never, never, never acceptable in America. It's undemocratic, and it must never be normalized to advance political power. Also notable, both the time and the location of today's address. President Biden delivered his remarks just hours after the Republican presidential candidate, and while Republicans on Capitol Hill hold their first hearing in their impeachment inquiry into President Biden, and the location, Arizona, one of the five battleground states at the center of Trump's efforts to overturn the election in 2020, also the home of the late Republican Senator John McCain. And by honoring McCain today, officials tell CNN President Biden was hoping to remind voters of an earlier era of bipartisanship and loyalty to the U.S. Constitution. 
I've come to honor the McCain Institute and Library because they are a home of a proud Republican who put his country first. Our commitment should be no less because democracy should unite all Americans regardless of political affiliation. Let's bring in CNN's Kristen Holmes. Kristen, let's talk about uh, a important reason for the president's speech. Trump, as recently as this week, has been signaling he would challenge the 2024 election results if he doesn't win. He definitionally describes him not winning as an indication that things are rigged or unfair. That's right, Jake. And I I do want to be clear here. Donald Trump, the things that Biden is saying that he has done, he is saying them as well. He has essentially said that if he is reelected, that he wants to completely overhaul the government and upend the democratic institutions as we know that know them. And that starts with these elections. It's not just 2020, as you mentioned, the fact that his election denials led to an insurrection on Capitol Hill, but it's also 2024. He has still not said that he would accept those election results in 2024. Will you commit to accepting the results of the election regardless of the outcome? If I think it's an honest election, I would be honored to. They rigged the presidential election of 2020, and we're not going to allow them to rig the presidential election of 2024. We will win bigger and better than ever before. They rigged the presidential election in 2020, and we're not going to allow them to rig the presidential election in 2024. And what was striking to me about what Biden was talking about is that, again, these are things that Donald Trump has said on the record. He has said them on his Truth Social page. He has said them in speeches. But Biden was really amplifying that, because if you look at where we are now versus when Trump was running for president the first time or when he was in office, he now has a much smaller platform. He's not on Twitter. He's not having all of his speeches covered. And so essentially, there's a chance that there's a section of Americans who don't actually know what Donald Trump has been saying since he left office. And I do want to go through some of these. He called for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, to be executed. He said he wants to bring the Department of Justice underneath the executive wing as part of getting rid of the deep state. But that would also allow him to weaponize the Department of Justice against his enemies, making enemies, making it political. Uh, He also said recently that if reelected, the media would be coverage would be scrutinized, that why should people get to have the airwaves for no reason, and that people would pay a big price in the media for their coverage. And he has talked very openly about the fact that he wants to reinstate Schedule F, which would essentially allow him to easily fire government employees, replace them with loyalists. And that last one is very interesting because that's not something that just Donald Trump wants to do. That has become really a platform of the Republican Party. I spoke to someone at Project 2025 who was preparing uh, for a Republican administration in 2025. And that's one of their key components there to try and get rid of these uh, bureaucratic employees that have these governmental job protections and replace them with loyalists who essentially would go along with whatever the president wanted. All right, Kristen Holmes, thanks so much. Let's discuss uh, Ron Brownstein. The battle for democracy was a successful (laughs) message uh, for Joe Biden uh, in 2020. He was talking about the soul of America. We didn't particularly know about the, the, how, how, the extent to which Donald Trump is going to try to subvert actual democracy at the time. Uh, in the 2022 uh, midterms, a lot of people uh, thought there was going to be a red wave. It didn't happen in part uh, because of uh, what happened in 2020. Um, do you think it's still a winning message for Democrats, at least in the margins where it could make a difference, like 
places such as Arizona? I mean, look, the first thing that has to be said is that for all the reasons Kristen laid out and many others, we are dealing with an unprecedented situation, uh, at least since the Civil War, where the dominant figures in one, dominant figure in one of our major parties is not committed to democracy in the way that we have understood it as a country. I mean, you probably have to go back to John Calhoun and the Democratic Party in the South before the Civil War to the last time you could say that. Um, democracy was a surprisingly, it, it surprised people the extent to which it was a valuable issue for Democrats in 22. I think if you look at the overall ledger of what's changed since Trump and Biden were last on the ballot together, you have more concerns about age and more concerns about inflation that are hurting Biden, and you have abortion and insurrection that are hurting Trump. And when all of those combines, the, the likely outcome is that Biden's coalition will probably tilt even further upscale, as you were talking about before. I mean, inflation, and as, as you saw in Trump's message this week, is going to make it harder for him to match his 2020 numbers among voters at the meet, around the median income who are feeling squeezed. But if you look at upscale voters who are the most receptive, most concerned about these institutions, about democracy, about abortion rights, he can hope to do even better than he did in 2020. And yet, Karen, uh, polls show that Joe Biden is really underwater uh, when it comes to approval on the economy, approval on uh, immigration and the border, when it comes to approval in almost every uh, realm. I mean, he's really facing, I think it's some of the worst polling for an incumbent president since Jimmy Carter. Um, do you think this is going to be enough? Absolutely, because the other group that really cares about this is young voters, actually. They care very deeply. And people are still concerned about democracy. They understand that a weak democracy is bad for the economy. It is bad for their own pocketbooks. I think the other thing, though, I want to point out that the president was trying to do, again, is, you know, he was talking about that MAGA theme, right? And sort of, again, as we saw in 2022, kind of separating out that there's an extremist part of the Republican Party and there are moderate Republicans, particularly in places like Arizona, independents who did vote for him last time, who are still very concerned about our democracy. I would argue, obviously, that on, on some of the polling, I think it's been a little bit all over the place. I think the state by state polls show a slightly different picture than some of the national polls. But I also think the other part of this speech is to get Democratic voters, not to get us revved up. To because get the, the base. The base, because quite frankly, most Democrats aren't really paying that close of attention because we don't have to. We don't have a contested primary. And so until it really is a head-to-head, -head, I think these polls are going to continue to be all over the place. Although Scott Jennings was here a second ago, um, David, and one of the points he was making was this, if this influences just one or two percent of Republicans sure. well, in yeah. places like Arizona. our beloved home commonwealth yeah. of Pennsylvania Absolutely. or Arizona or Michigan, Wisconsin, where if you look at the 2022 results, nope. it really did have a result in those places, yeah. in those states and commonwealths, election liars lost statewide. Right. Yeah. statewide. Yeah. And so interestingly, as Ron points out, you know, it's going to be Lower Marion, right, and and you know Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. Those are the places where this is kind of going to turn. And and you know how many people are going to be receptive to the Biden message? How many people are excited about the ticket, right? How many people are going to show up on uh, and, and turn out versus how many people are going to come back in Scranton, Wilkes-Barre, the suburbs, Altoona, Blair County, right, Johnstown, Uniontown, where Trump outperformed in Pennsylvania sure. wildly, right? That's the question. And both things may happen. And yeah, yeah. the likelihood is that both things may happen. You know, Biden, the, the overwhelming likelihood, I think, is that Biden is going to need people in 24 who feel that he did not deliver for their interests yeah. to vote for him anyway because they think he better represents their values yeah. than yeah. Trump. And Democrats were able, you know, all the states where Democrats, those five key states, yeah. 
Uh, Democrats won seven of the nine Senate and governor races. And in all of those states, at least 75 percent of the people were saying describing the economy in negative terms. So they were able to get people to make that leap. Could yeah. be harder in a presidential race, but, but there is a precedent. I would it. argue, though, there may be one other thing that happened, because I'm seeing this in, among some of the members of my own family who are conservative military folks who voted for Trump the first time. We'll get them back, don't worry. Yeah. No, actually, you know what? They're, they're not going to vote. They're not right, going to vote is, for Biden, uh, but they're just, if it's Trump, they're just not going to vote. I think that's uh-uh. the other challenge Republicans may have this time. People may not vote for Biden. They may just not vote well, at well, all. Well, John King, John King talked about this, right? This is 50 to 75,000 people. In all these states, this right. has been a huge universe. Right. This is a very small thing. Four states. Yeah, maybe. four yeah. states, five states. But and and I'd also Let me say, talk yeah, about 2016. Yeah. It didn't take that many. I know. Listen, I was there. I was there. I was on the ground. I was one of 45,000 in Pennsylvania. Yeah. But you know, let's not count out Cornell West and the impact he might have as sure. a third party, right? Sure. Absolutely. If he's running on a Green Party ticket, you know, Jill Stein got three percent of the vote. Yeah. Cornell West is an articulate guy. Very, very smart, savvy, right? Brilliant, yeah. He's on Fox News. He's out there. He's he's working. We've had him so, on. We've yeah. had him no, on. So I'm saying he's, he's going. He, so it'll be interesting to <laughs> right. see. It'll be interesting to see if that peels off any. That's not great for for Democrats and and, uh, and the current administration as well. So it's going to be very interesting. If anybody thinks this is turn off the TV and go home, this is going to be you know very tough, very tough race. Well, one of the interesting things that Kristen Holmes was, was making, the point she was making, is that a lot of the stuff that President Biden is talking about is just facts yeah. in terms of what Donald Trump is saying. I mean, like, maybe they would describe them differently, but but basically Donald Trump is not making any bones about what well, he wants to do for in another term. As I said, we, we are in a situation we have not been in before right. as a country where we have the dominant figure in one of our major parties is running, has not only behaved in a way in the past, but is promising more of the same in the future uh, of, of challenges to the basic pillars of American democracy. Of accepting and the election results. Accepting peaceful election results. Tra- peaceful transfer of power. Yeah, uh, hanging the former chairman of the, the Joint yeah. Chief of Staff. Or uh, your revoking, own vice president. Yeah, revoking right. the licenses of networks that, uh, trying to revoke the license of networks that, that, uh, that, that criticize you. Now, you know, not every voter is going to say this is the decisive, there are people who are worried about, understandably, affording the necessities of life. And there may be people who think that Donald Trump was better for the economy than Joe Biden. But what 22 showed us is that a reductionist view that simply says, who, yeah, who is better for my interests is the winning hand in American right. politics. Well, it's no longer and, true. And one, yeah. other, one other point on this is in Arizona, I think there were a lot of Democrats, maybe you, maybe not, I'm not sure, who were worried that Katie Hobbs, the then uh, at the attorney general, Secretary, Secretary, State. Secretary of State, was not running the most aggressive, charismatic campaign. Mm-hmm. And she still won oh, because she was running... Yeah. And she was still run against a more charismatic but also less hinged more candidate, yeah. more election-denying candidate uh, in Carrie Lake, uh, because there were enough Republicans that were like, I don't want this nonsense. That's right. It's uh, exhaustion. It is exhaustion. And something you tease at the top of the show, Americans are depressed. I mean, in their yeah. own lives, Americans are dealing I, I would with just say a this. lot. If Donald Trump would stop looking in the rearview mirror and just start talking about energy independence, talk about the economy, the things that the people are talking around that are really affecting mm-hmm. folks and say, we did better, right? We could do better. It'd be a different race. Well, if my aunt were my yeah. uncle, etc. <laughs> Everyone stay with me. We'll come back to the panel. We're going to the Capitol Hill next where Republicans rolled out some witnesses after witnesses in their first impeachment inquiry trying to tie President Biden to the sleaze and corruption they allege are there with uh, Biden family members and associates. Were they successful? Plus, another F-bomb thrown. 
in a testy exchange that does nothing to solve the bigger problem. The government headed for a shutdown in less, three, less than three days. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. In just over two days, look at that. Two days, seven hours, 39 minutes, 38 seconds. The government, U.S. government, could shut down if the House and Senate are unable to come to an agreement on how to fund the U.S. government, which is, this is just what happens in fully functional societies. This means millions of Americans will lose their paychecks after tomorrow. Members of Congress, don't worry about them, though. They will still continue to receive theirs. Of course, much of the current stalemate lies at the feet of House Republicans because they are Divided. They can't even pass a short-term bill, one that includes border security, or pass the Senate-approved bipartisan bill, which doesn't have border funding, but will keep the government open until mid-November. And despite the financial emergency this all puts the country into, House Republicans today still found some time, do not worry, folks, to hold the first hearing of their impeachment inquiry for President Biden, which just ended after about six hours with an announcement from the chairman of the House Oversight Committee, James Comer. He plans to subpoena the bank records of Hunter Biden, the president's son, and James Biden, the president's brother, later today. Republicans are raising many of the same as yet unproven allegations that President Biden himself personally financially benefited from Hunter's business dealings. But, but, as CNN Sarah Murray reports, The Republicans' own witnesses today undercut the premise of this impeachment inquiry. House Republicans putting forth plenty of bombast. If we had a box of all the foreign money the Bidens took, it would have reached to the ceiling. But as Democrats noted, no new evidence. What's missing despite years of investigation is the smoking gun that connects Joe Biden to his never-do-well son's corruption. As the GOP convened its first hearing in the impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. Whether it was lunches, phone calls, White House meetings, or official foreign trips, Hunter Biden cashed in by arranging access to Joe Biden, the family brand. Republicans kicking off an impeachment inquiry that's set to explore whether Joe Biden performed any official acts 
traded access or offered the perception of access in exchange for money from foreign interests to either him or his family. Also on the GOP agenda, whether Joe Biden meddled in investigations into Hunter Biden. But the GOP has not uncovered any proof Joe Biden benefited from his son Hunter Biden's overseas business deals or intervened in Hunter Biden's criminal prosecution. In your testimony today, are you presenting any first-hand witness account of crimes committed by the president of the United States. No, I'm not. Even as Republicans tried to drive home claims of Biden family corruption. Hunter Biden referred to access to his father as the keys to his family's only asset. Those words are going to come back and haunt Hunter Biden and his family forever. Their own witnesses failed to back them up, noting that Republicans are currently operating on allegations rather than hard facts. I do not believe that the current evidence would support articles of impeachment. That is something that an inquiry has to establish. I am not here today to even suggest that there was corruption, fraud, or any wrongdoing. In my opinion, more information needs to be gathered and assessed before I would make such an assessment. In a hearing that, at times, grew testy. You keep speaking about no evidence. Why don't you all just listen and I'm learn? trying to introduce evidence. You've already introduced, you've already had your Is it share it? of evidence. Democrats ultimately slammed their colleagues for pressing ahead with an impeachment inquiry amid a looming government shutdown. It is incredible that we are holding this sham hearing two days before the government will shut down. Now, these Republican witnesses today, they clearly thought that there were questions to be asked, Jake, by these yeah. members of Congress. But the members walk into this as if they already have the answers, already have the facts. That wasn't the case. I mean, Republican lawmakers who are watching this play out, other Republican aides did not think it went particularly well. One senior GOP aide said it was an unmitigated disaster and pointed to the fact that there were these witnesses who couldn't even back up the core premise of what a number of these Republican lawmakers were well, saying. One of them said that there was a that Joe Biden took a bribe, and that was that's an unproven anonymous allegation. There's a lot of those, a lot of those unproven allegations that sort of come from the Republican lawmakers' mouth, and again are not backed up by the facts they actually have. Let's just see the facts and the evidence. I mean, if if that exists, let's see it. Well, it wasn't coming from these witnesses today. We'll see. All right, Sarah Murray, thanks so much. Meanwhile, the dysfunction among House Republicans on the government spending issue is getting uglier, some Republican-on-Republican Republican violence. Sources tell CNN that the words scumbag and F off, except not F off, were directed at Congressman Matt Gates of Florida from members of his own party today. CNN's Manu Raju is on Capitol Hill. Manu Raju, F off. Logan Roy used to say that on Succession on HBO. I suppose we're cable, we could say it, but... It's an afternoon show. We like family people watching. We like the kids watching. We, we want to keep, keep the parents allowing them to watch. It's a civics lessons of sort. What led to a member of Congress telling Matt Gates to F off? Well, there's been a lot of tension between Matt Gates and really much of the House GOP conference, but particularly with the Speaker of the House. Of course, Gates has been threatening for weeks to try to force a vote seeking McCarthy's ouster as the Speaker, something that he continues to wield as the government is on the cusp of potentially shutting down this weekend. Now, Gates believes that McCarthy's allies have been bashing him. I mean, he's been paying uh, conservative influencers to bash Gates on social media. And that's what Gates confronted McCarthy over in a closed 
closed-door meeting this morning. He accused the Speaker of getting being behind this effort. The Speaker denied this and said he would not waste his time or money on Matt Gates and also contended that he's spending about $5 million. He just recently transferred over to the GOP effort to take back the House majority. That's what he was focusing on, focusing on. And then that's when some members in the room grumbled and were overheard by others saying that, that Gates should F off, calling him a scumbag and and the like. So that went back and forth, Jake. But of course, this is all uh, coloring the debate right now within the House GOP about how to fund the government. All right. We're told that the uh, chairman of the House Oversight Committee, James Comer, is talking uh, right now. Let's dip into that, hear what he has to say. Displayed as, as if it was a text message. Mm-hmm. Uh, Congressman Ocasio-Cortez is accusing uh, uh, him and your staff of, of manipulating that and not including the full conversation, mm-hmm. uh, the conversation between uh, uh, Hunter Biden and his uncle about alimony and, and child support payments. Uh, that was something, uh, going back to the mentioned January 6th committee, mm-hmm. uh, Congressman Jordan was very critical of Congressman Schiff and some of the visuals he displayed mm-hmm. accusing him of, of, of putting things in text messages that weren't text messages or or displaying things that lack context. Mm-hmm. What's your response? I, I don't know. I'll have to look and see. I, I don't know exactly what happened there with the text, but I'll, I'll certainly find uh, out. Chairman Comer, with regard to the Ukraine and Victor Shokin, in 2019, a lot of people from the State Department came and testified that Joe Biden was just implementing the policy that they had all developed. Mm-hmm. So how will you deal with that? Were those people... Well, look, we just found that email that Jim Jordan mentioned in the closing statement that said the actual position from the by, from the Obama State Department was that Shokin was doing a good job, that the, congratulations on the great work you're doing. So that's why we're going to continue the investigation. I think we had a great hearing today. We established the basis for impeachment inquiry. That was the objective. We did that. We presented the evidence. Uh, many of you, I don't know what more evidence you need. I mean, you know, what did the biden's do for the 20 million dollars that's that's the question you may not like the evidence and you may be selling that there's no evidence but let me assure you the american people aren't buying what you're selling they want to know what did this family do to get 20 million dollars and what level of involvement did joe biden have? and that's why we will continue this impeachment inquiry thought it was a great hearing today uh now i've got to go to the floor for house folks thank you all all right so that was the uh, chairman of the House Oversight Committee, James Comer, uh, taking some questions from reporters after his committee hearing. Uh, this was the first hearing for the impeachment inquiry uh, into President Biden. Obviously, there are a lot of questions about what the Republicans on the committee refer to as Biden family and associates, which does not include President Biden, but Biden family and associates and the money that they have raised uh, from various Uh, business dealings, uh, some of which may be questionable, some of which may not be. Uh, Let's go back to Manu uh, Raju. Uh, Manu, at this point, the question remains, is there anything tying direct evidence that any of this money went to President Biden when he was vice president or when he was a private citizen or when he was president? And, And so far, other there's there have been allegations and rumors, but I have not seen any evidence, uh, like in terms of like a bank statement, in terms of uh, anything other than hearsay, uh, even, even this FBI statement uh, of, of somebody, a, a, a credible FBI source, hearing that the head of Burisma said that he gave money in what sounds like a shady transfer of funds, that was to Biden's 
two different Bidens, but I don't, I don't know which Bidens there were. There are a lot of Bidens running around here. Yeah, they're trying to establish that, right, Jake? They're trying to say that the money that went to Hunter Biden actually benefited Joe Biden. And that's been their challenge all along throughout this investigation, coming up with the proof to show that Joe Biden personally benefited financially by Hunter Biden's business dealings. There have been some, they've gotten some evidence showing some wire transfers to the Biden family home. There's not clear whether this was actually something that the former, the current president and former vice president benefited from in any way financially, if this was all Hunter Biden himself, or whether Joe Biden took official action while serving as vice president to help out his son in any his business dealings. That's been something they've been trying to prove all along throughout this investigation, something that they acknowledge that they still don't have the def- definitive evidence of yet. So, Jake, there's st- still, even among Republicans, questions that they have about whether they can actually prove that Joe Biden acted in any corrupt way. But you can hear from the chairman right there. He believes that president did. He believes the plans to press ahead, including with subpoenas for Hunter Biden's business records that could potentially end up in court if Hunter Biden does not comply in any way with that issue or if they don't, if they're not able to get that, that key information here. But, Jake, this has been the challenge all along for the Republicans, tying it directly to Joe Biden, tying Hunter Biden's actions to Joe Biden, and something that they have not been able to find definitive evidence of just yet. Jake. Yeah, and we should just note, I mean, on that issue of wire transfers from China to the Biden family home, one during the Republican, uh, I'm sorry, during the presidential debates, then Vice President Biden denied that his son got a penny from China. uh, And that was not true. Uh, And two, we know that Hunter Biden was actually living with his parents during this period that the money was transferred to the Biden family home in Delaware. And we know that from these same Republicans that told us this in a couple years ago, They, they disclosed this through their oversight investigations. Yeah, and look, there's also questions about what Joe Biden did with uh, while Hunter Biden was meeting with foreign some of these foreign business associates. We had heard there was testimony from uh, Hunter Biden's associate, Devin Archer, who came before the committee, said there were about 20 interactions or so of Joe Biden talking with some of Hunter Biden's business associates. But that same witness said that there were no actual business that was discussed in that meeting. It was more niceties and talking about the weather and the like. So that's been the challenge all along for them to try to show some uh, some action that Joe Biden took beyond just this interaction that may be questionable, but no evidence, at least from that testimony, that Joe Biden was involved with Hunter Biden's efforts here. All right, Manu Raju, thanks so much. Uh, let's discuss all this with the panel. Um, so, uh, David, all of this going on, and look, the House Oversight Committee, this is their responsibility to investigate things of import to the American people. I mean, there's a lot of import, that's of import to the American sure. people. I personally wish that there were more investigations, whether it's Democrats or Republicans in charge of Congress, of what the pharmaceutical industry has done in terms of the opioid epidemic, uh, which seems to me of much more importance, and, the, and what's going on with fentanyl in this country, tens of thousands of Americans dying than this. But be that as it may, there's about to be a government shutdown because House Republicans can't even agree on a bill that won't even pass the Senate. So um, Absolutely. What, what do you think of the timing of all this? It sucks, obviously, right? It sucks. That, <laughs> I think you can say that in the afternoon. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah I think you can fine. say that in the afternoon. You can say anything you want. I'm just trying to get so, the you know, kids it, to watch. It, look, it, it's, 
it, it, it's sad that we, we're at this point, right? Because it is, it, look, I don't agree with, uh, with Congressman Gates on, on many things, right? But I do think they should, the Congress has some basic responsibilities, right? Pass a budget, pass the 13 appropriations bills, right? Stay and do your work. Yep. So basic stuff. That's what the American people expect. You know, you hire somebody, you hire an electrician to come fix your broken light, they fix your light. You hire somebody, a congressman, you expect them to go to D.C. and legislate. And so these are the basic things I think should be getting done, whether Democrats or Republicans are in charge. And so, you know, going away for the weekend, not doing stuff, not grinding the grind from day one, they're, they're, you know, everything should be focused at this point on trying to get a solution. I think, unfortunately, the, the speaker's in a spot where he's got a small handful of people who are just intransigent. And no matter what he does or says or gives them, they're just going to hold their breath until they turn blue and shut the government down. They want to be able to go back to their districts yeah. and show, but beat their chest and show. He has options, though. I mean, yeah. he, who has options? The speaker. I mean, he, well, he won't be, he won't be speaker. He, he, he might not be speaker. <laughs> ultimately, what, they are not going to shut down the government forever. Ultimately, there will have to be Ten a, days. Ultimately, there will have to be a deal to reopen the government. And that deal will have to go through a Democratic Senate and a Democratic president. So he could, and, you know, as you say, there is a portion of the caucus going back to the, the, the Boehner and the Ryan speakerships that have always felt they have to show they are doing whatever they can to kind of advance their agenda. But in the end, McCarthy is going to have to make a deal that Democrats will accept. So he could do that now and not go through the performative but, exercise of shutting down the government. But the only with all people the that would vote for that, you were saying, with some House Republican moderates yeah, and yeah, the Democrats. Yeah. Uh, and, and, but it, then it, he'd lose his speakership. He, well, he might or he I might not. I was just going to say, here's the thing. He's probably going to lose his speakership either way. I mean, does anybody really think that Kevin McCarthy is going to be speaker maybe a month from now? Really? Do you think David's raising his hand. Okay. He's going to be speaker because there's no other option. It goes to Unicorn Lane. I'm going to talk to you about it. No other option. No, but, you know, I mean, but. This is a game that Republicans have played over and over and over again. I don't disagree. 1995, 2013, 2018, 2023. What's, what do those all have in common? A GOP-controlled House where we shut, had to well, shut down the government. But here's the thing. Like, at least in previous uh, shutdowns, it was about something, right? Correct. In 2013, it was about the fact that people like Ted Cruz wanted to get rid of Obamacare. Now, you might not agree with it, but they right. wanted to get rid of Obamacare. I'm not really quite sure what this is about. I, there's a little bit about the border, a little about Ukraine, a little bit. There's a little, there's smatterings of all different, you know, different. But, but a majority of House Republicans uh, support Ukraine. Absolutely, they do. But, and yeah. the problem is that part of what is coming out is... Foul language between Matt Gates and Kevin McCarthy. Well, let's McCarthy talk about that because, David, there was drama behind closed doors between McCarthy and Gates. Gates is leading the charge to oust him, and also he's just the, the fly in the ointment on any sort of deal. Gates confronted McCarthy about whether McCarthy's allies were paying conservative influencers <laughs> to bash Gates in social media posts. McCarthy reportedly responded he would not waste his time or money on Gates. I, I probably believe that that exchange occurred. It may, may be a little more flowery language, as you alluded to, yeah. right? Hey, look, there's no love lost between the two, clearly. And, but if you're Matt Gates, if, you're, if, if I got to talk to Matt Gates and say, what's your option? What's, what's, when you pull the thread here, what's your plan, Matt Gates? At the end of the day, how are you advancing the cause of the American people? Matt Gates, I think, wants to run for you know, governor in Florida. He's kind of p- posturing to be the next tough guy, right? But how is he helping his constituents? How is he helping Americans? He, he doesn't have a solution. He's not putting forth a solution saying, here are the three things I'd like to accomplish, and then I'll vote for your But that's exactly Jake's point. There's not any clear message coming through about, here's our principal stance about why well, I, we're holding this out. And I, I think ultimately that is going to be that's bad why Republicans the Republican lose. That's why, we, that's why we get a black eye every time you do this. Yeah. Every time. So thank you to our panel. More than half of all Senate Democrats are now have... 
they'd gone on the record and said that they would like their colleague, Senator Bob Menendez, Democrat of New Jersey, to resign. The Democrat from Jersey addressed the members of his party today behind closed doors. How that meeting went, that's next. And we're back with our politics lead with a dusting of our money lead. While Costco says new one-ounce gold bars are flying off the shelves, Senator Menendez's gold bars are apparently not weighing him down at all, at least not in public. This afternoon, the New Jersey Democrat told his colleagues he will not resign, even though 30 of his 50 fellow Senate Democrats have asked him to do just that. After the Foreign Relations Committee chairman was indicted by the Justice Department, again, This scathing indictment alleges sweeping corruption, bribes, and most notably that Menendez, quote, secretly aided the government of Egypt. Those bribes came in the form of those aforementioned gold bars, cold hard cash, and a Mercedes convertible. CNN's Melanie Zanona is on Capitol Hill for us. Melanie, really it seems the only repercussion so far is that Menendez is not the Senate Foreign Relations Committee chairman at anymore, right? Right, and that's only temporary. He's only temporarily stepping down as chairman from that committee. Ben Cardin has already taken over. He was the next in line. But I will say, Jake, that Ben Cardin has not yet said whether he is comfortable with Menendez continuing to serve on the panel or receiving classified briefings, given the nature of the allegations against him. Let's listen to what Cardin told reporters earlier today. That's the primary uh, issue that I think we have to take up. Depending on what happens today and what his decisions are, which I don't know, but uh, I think there are some questions that have to be answered. Now, Menendez did have an opportunity to address his colleagues behind closed doors today, and we are told that during that meeting he reiterated he was not going to resign. He defended his record on Egypt, and he also said that he was not going to get into the nitty-gritty about his charges and the gold bars, that he didn't want to preview his legal defense strategy. He also said that prosecutors have long been after him and that he has been unfairly targeted. But not everyone was buying that argument. Senators that were leaving that room said their minds were not changed, and they continue to say that he should step down from his post. Melanie, um, I say as a Philadelphian, um, we in Pennsylvania tend to give a little guff to our friends across the river in New Jersey, but the feud between Pennsylvania Senator Fetterman and Menendez from New Jersey is far beyond that. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly right. Fetterman was the very first senator to come out and call for Menendez's resignation. He's been very vocal and outspoken. Interestingly, though, Fetterman did not attend the closed-door meeting today where Menendez was speaking. He said there's nothing he can say. The only honorable thing for him to do at this point is to step down. But Armani Raju reported that Menendez did make a veiled reference at Senator Fetterman and said he's disappointed in one of the senators who's been vocally critical of him and everyone in the room interpreted that as a shot at Fetterman. Yeah, Melanie Zanona on Capitol Hill, thanks so much. Families trekking miles through the jungle, then going on rafts, jam-packed vans, even more walking. CNN joins migrants on their desperate journeys. That's next. To Steve. In our world lead, Mexico's President Andres Manuel López Obrador says he will invite officials from about 10 countries to come and discuss migration flows and to present a proposal of his own to try to address the crisis. But he did not give any specifics. This does come as Mexico has promised to try to slow the surge of migrants crossing its southern border with Guatemala and continuing north 
into the United States. CNN's David Culver is, as you know, along the Mexican-Guatemalan border in the south of Mexico, where migrants are determined to continue their dangerous journey north. They stick together throughout, no one left behind, from falls to steep climbs. It's a lot of young children, so some of them are just basically being carried up to dead ends. They started to go the wrong way for the moment, and now they're backtracking a little bit. Setback after setback. He's saying that they paid, were promised another pickup on the other side, but it seems like that driver just took off with their money. This, just part of a day's journey for these migrants, a day that started not here in southern Mexico, but across the Suchiate River in Guatemala. Hola, muy buenas. With passport stamped, we take the official land crossing. Stepping into a vibrant Tecunamán. In the shade of the town square, we meet two families from Venezuela, traveling as one. They're saying they're ready to cross. They welcome us to join. Tienes siete años, no? Siete. Seven years old. A 15-minute stroll to the river. After 18 grueling days on the road, Jemile Rodriguez tells me it's been costly. No, but she says, like, the, the, going through the jungle is like dealing with the mafia. She says you have to pay in order to leave, and they had to pay $250 a person. As they arrive at the river, another expense, the crossing. Meanwhile, we go back to the Mexico side using the official entry and hop onto a raft. We're waiting for the two families that we met to make their way across, and they're about to board a raft and meet us in the middle as they cross illegally to Mexico. Their raft drifts over the border, and we meet again in Mexico. He's saying they're headed to the land of opportunity. Migrant children scramble to help tug them to shore. They step off and into Ciudad Hidalgo, a small border town. It allows for just a moment of joy, if only for the kids. Their goal tonight, Tapachula, to get Mexican transit documents. They learn it's not as close as they'd hoped, 20 miles, normally an hour's drive. But there's a catch. Is that your van? Yeah, yeah. yeah. See? Oh, okay. They're getting on right now. Because they never entered Mexico legally, they need to avoid the multiple migration checkpoints. Otherwise, the Mexican drivers could be accused of smuggling. Every crevice of the van filled. Then they're off on the road for only about 10 minutes. We watch as they pull over just before the first checkpoint. Everyone out. They walk the direction they think they're supposed to head. You can tell they're basically just trying to figure out their way as they go. They have no real guide. They were told some general instructions, and now they're just trying to figure it out. Weaving through brush and high grass, up and down hills, they skirt around the first migration checkpoint. But on the other side, the same driver who they paid to wait for them has taken off. So they're trying to figure out if they can get another van or they keep walking. Looks like for now they're just going to keep walking. A few minutes pass, another van pulls up. Fifteen minutes later, another stop, another checkpoint walk around. Thirty minutes after that, yet another. This one takes them on a bridge directly over the migration checkpoint. Back on the van they go. Before sunset, they make it to Tapachula. Relieved? Sure. Also, 
overwhelmed, thinking about the unknowns ahead, but determined to keep moving north, smiling and waving. We'll see you later, they tell us. Yeah, you notice it's not a goodbye, Jake. It's a we'll see you later, because they are determined to get to the U.S. side. Now, when they get to Tapatula, the reason they're so keen to get here from we're about 25, 20 miles or so where we are, the, the actual border crossing, is because they want to join this line. And you can see this is where a lot of the folks are trying to get some of those documentation, the transit documents, even if they can claim asylum here in Mexico. That would then help them so as to not worry about being here illegally. They don't have to then dodge those migration checkpoints. One other thing that's worth noting is that as we've been out here for the past few days, we've noticed just how laxed a lot of the enforcement is from a migration perspective. You've got a lot of these illegal crossings happening right in front of Mexican officials. And even with the checkpoints, it's really not all that strict. Yeah, CNN's David Culver near the Mexican-Guatemalan border. Thank you so much. Great work. You were supposed to get something substantive out of this. Take a look. Here's a fact. Here's a fact, though. I you wanted a gas tax increase. I'm sorry, what? Did, you, can, did anyone make out any of that? The second Republican debate where candidates got a primetime opportunity to make their best case to undecided voters. How to make sense of where the candidates stand right now with less than four months to go before the first actual contest in the 2024 race. That's next. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, the new lawsuit facing the FBI over the only unsolved hijacking in U.S. aviation history. Whatever happened to D.B. Cooper? We're going to talk with a sleuth about the piece of evidence from the 1971 hijacking. He is now suing to be able to see. Plus, another major legal blow for Donald Trump after losing an appeal. He is set to go on trial on Monday in a civil case with the New York Attorney General is asking for a $250 million penalty. And now we're learning multiple Trumps are on the witness list. And leading this hour, cue the music for the 2024 lead. Yes, the veritable second coming of the Lincoln-Douglas debates last night in California. A political Algonquin roundtable in Simi Valley for the second Republican debate. Just kidding. Here's a fact, though. But I cut said I You wanted a gas tax increase, and then you wanted a... We did not intend to go ahead like this. In fact, we were about to take a... Did you catch that? Any of that? Okay. Me neither. So let's quickly catch up. While last night's debate was held in the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library, some conservatives lamented that today's 2024 Republican presidential candidates hardly served up enough moral leadership to make their oft-quoted conservative idol proud. Remember Reagan's famous 11th commandment, quote, thou shalt not speak ill 
of any fellow Republican? Well, none of those on stage, especially former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, perhaps, didn't seem a fan of that commandment. I honestly, every time I hear you, I feel a little bit dumber for what you say. And what we've party, seen is you've it. gone and you've we helped China stop. build, make medicines in China, not America. Me, you are me. now wanting kids to go and get on the social media that's dangerous for all of no. us. You went and you were in business with the Chinese that gave Hunter Biden $5 million. We can't trust you. In her defense, that I feel a little bit dumber line is pretty good. Reagan also loved to refer to the United States as that shining city on the hill, while today's reality is a bit more grim. Candidates offered a vision of a crumbling America from the economy to the border to healthcare to education. They blasted each other's records. Take a listen to Senator Tim Scott. Talk about someone who has never seen a federal dollar she doesn't like. Ten cents on this gallon in South Carolina as the U.N. ambassador. You literally Bring it, put $50,000 on <laughs> curtains in a $15 million subsidized location. Next. You got bad information. Meanwhile, the Republican frontrunner for a second time took a pass on deigning to debate his fellow candidates. He is not the incumbent, we should remind everyone. This time, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis had a message for Mr. Trump. And you know who else is missing in action? Donald Trump is missing in action. He should be on this stage tonight. He owes it to you to defend his record where they added $7.8 trillion to the debt. That set the stage for the inflation that we have. And while the candidates sparred for two hours, moderators did not ask about the former president's insane call for General Mark Milley to be executed, essentially nor Mr. Trump's most recent crippling legal blow, a New York judge finding him and his adult sons liable for fraud. That was not brought up either. So who won the debate, you might ask? Who did analysts believe had the best night? Well, Trump made it very clear whom he believes his biggest rival is, immediately releasing this campaign statement titled The Real Nikki Haley citing a 2012 New York Times interview where Haley said, quote, the reason I actually ran for office is because of Hillary Clinton, unquote. Now, Trump has already decided he's definitely not attending the third debate. Joining me now, the man in charge of one of the first states to decide, uh, the presidential nominee, um, Republican governor of New Hampshire, the live for your die state, Chris Sununu. Governor Sununu, good to see you. Charlie Sykes of the Bulwark called the, this the, quote, kids' table debate. Did you see an adult in the room? If so, who? Sure. Look, it was very chippy, right? I mean, there's no doubt about that. Um, I've been on those debate stages before, and it, it's, it's a very big temptation just to start talking over and making your point and all that. Uh, but there was actually a discipline and a benefit to holding back, and I think everyone wished that had happened more. I thought DeSantis did very well. He, he was able to, you know, hit Trump a little bit and uh, kind of stick to his guns about what made him kind of that second-place contender to Donald Trump. I think Nikki Haley did very well. There's no doubt about it. She showed that she doesn't get rattled if you try to take a shot at her, and she's not afraid to call folks out. Elections are about a choices. That's kind of the thing I, I really was resonating in my head. They're about choices, and you have a couple candidates that I think really understand that and show a differentiation. Arguing isn't a differentiation. You're talking o- over each other, not a differentiation. But knowing where your, where your opponent stands, being able to call that out, doing your homework, I think Nikki did a, a great job in that sense. So 
The big challenge for Republicans like you who, who don't want uh, President Biden to be reelected, but also don't think Donald Trump will be able to achieve that, is to figure out which candidate among all of these to get behind. Um, I want to play another clip from the debate. Take a listen. If you all stay in the race, former President Donald Trump wins the nomination. None of you have indicated that you're dropping out. So which one of you on stage tonight should be voted off the island? (laughs) Please use your marker to write your choice on the notepad in front of you. 15 (laughs) seconds starting now of the people on the stage. Who should be? I'm absolutely serious. Okay, so that's a little silly. But but let's let's assume that that you agree because you have said that that the, the it needs to consolidate a bit that that it can't you can't have all these people. Who do you think? And it, obviously Donald Trump is not dropping out; he's way ahead in the polls. Who are the top three others that you think should stay in the race? So a couple of things. Let's start with if you weren't on the debate stage last night, there's no path to victory. There's just not. Uh, so you know those those campaigns and those candidates have to have some tough discussion. So all right, now we're down to seven. I think by the third debate, as you get around Thanksgiving, if you're at, if you're polling at five percent or below nationally, you probably got to go. I mean, it, there's just no path to go from four percent to a to, to a victory. Um, and ultimately, Iowa and New Hampshire will come down. I don't think any of these candidates have to actually win Iowa or New Hampshire, but you have to have one or two really stand out as that second or third place candidate, and that allows you to get it to one on one by. Uh, Super Tuesday. That's really the key. So there is a lot of time for the candidates to still show their campaigns. Uh, but ultimately, I think as you get into that holiday season, uh, if you're not showing it, th- there's no path anymore. And, and that's where the donors and not just themselves, but the donors, the campaign staff themselves, all these other voices need to be vocal about uh, pushing a few off the island. So you know what happened in, in 2020 is that there was such fear among Democratic Big wigs that Bernie Sanders would get the nomination because all the other Democrats were splitting all the other vote that everybody just consolidated around Joe Biden. I mean, that's what happened. It was this. I don't know. It's someday somebody Woodward or somebody's going to write the book about what what was really going on right. and who was pulling the strings. Right. Presumably uh, somebody like I don't even know who has that kind of power in, in the Republican Party today, but. Who do, you yeah, think, do that. who do you think has the best chance of, of, of defeating Trump in, in New Hampshire? Um, right now, it'd be DeSantis or Nikki Haley, without a doubt. I mean, they're, they're really driving forward. Uh, Chris Christie's doing very well. I think that one of the issues with Chris's campaign is, you know, there's not a lot of ground game in some of these other states. So he has to figure out, OK, even if he does well in New Hampshire, how does he get from here to there uh, with the victory? And I think Chris is, is, is great. I really do. But um, he's got to make sure that he has the other pieces and can convince folks, the donors and whatnot, that he can get from here to there. I mean, I think all those candidates on the stage still have a real shot. There's still six weeks between now and basically the next debate. There's another four weeks after that, I think, until you get into that holiday season where folks really start deciding. About 40% of Republican-based voters will decide who they're going to vote for after Thanksgiving, right? So there's still a, even that includes Trump voters, too. So there's still a lot of movement to be had. Um, so again, you know, everyone has a different path there, but I think Nikki and, and DeSantis are doing incredibly well. There's no doubt about it. They're, they're connecting with folks. Um, I think Ron has to do a little more on the ground stuff here in New Hampshire, but he's, you know, really planted himself in Iowa and his poll numbers are very strong there to be sure. It's resonating with a lot of those base voters. Nikki's playing a, a good conservative, but she's 
being aggressive about going after some of those more moderate, independent yeah. voices, which I think will help her in the long run. And there's this uh, trial balloon being floated today for uh, the, the governor we got just south of us here uh, in Virginia, Glenn Youngkin. Uh, Bob Costa in the Post uh, so has this that. piece and then, uh, in which uh, there's uh, discussion uh, of uh, Youngkin, uh, quote, last minute addition to the sclerotic Republican uh, field possibility. This afternoon, Youngkin dodged the question on Fox News. He said he was, quote, focused on Virginia. Um, wh- is there room for Youngkin? Look, I'm one of Glenn Youngkin's biggest fans. Tremendous governor. I don't know if anyone can get in the race at this point. There's a couple reasons why. You need infrastructure. you got to get on the ballots, like, literally in the next few weeks in some of these states. So it'd be weird to get in the race and you're not even on the New Hampshire or Iowa ballot. You need ground game. You need to actually be knocking on the doors. And I think what you'd see is six or seven of these other candidates looking at this new candidate saying, where have you been? You haven't been out there talking to folks. You can't just come in at the last minute. And it, there would be a lot of attacks on that individual, I think, and put them in. They would start them off in a very defensive position if they thought almost in an arrogant way they could just come in and uh, and be considered a top contender without really working the ground like a lot of these other candidates have. So I think there's just a lot of things working against somebody that would try to get into the race this late, knowing still that Trump is still does have these these pretty tough leads. They're not insurmountable, but they're tough. And you got to you got to put the work in. To, to earn the votes. There's always this waiting for Godot candidate that happens, you know, <laughs> Mitch Daniels, uh, Mario Cuomo. It's, it's, it's always just kind of this campaign silliness. Republican Governor Chris Sununu of New Hampshire, always good to see you. Thanks so much. Thank you, buddy. Be good. CNN digging into some of the claims Republicans made today in their first impeachment inquiry into Joe Biden. Shell companies connected to the Bidens, wire transfers from China, bribes from Burisma. What's true? What's false? What's in between? We're going to take a look. But first, new details about who might take the stand at Donald Trump's civil fraud trial next week in New York. Let's just say some of the witnesses might share some of Trump's DNA. In our law and justice lead, two big updates in that $250 million civil fraud trial against former President Donald Trump, his adult sons, Eric and Don Jr., and his company. One... The trial is expected to start Monday after Trump lost an appeal today to delay it. And two, Don Jr. and Eric, are on the witness list. CNN's Kara Scannell has more on this. Kara, let's start with that legal loss today for Trump. Yeah, Jake. So a New York appeals court today denied Trump's request to delay the start of this trial. Now, Trump had asked for that because the lower court judge, Arthur Angoran, had not yet ruled on these motions for summary judgment. He made that surprise ruling on Tuesday that was very expansive, um, finding that Trump was liable for fraud and that they had committed persistent fraud through these inflated values on their financial statements. So now, with that out of the way, the appeals court saying it's go time. So the trial will start Monday. And um, the issues here will be about damages as well as the the New York Attorney General's office looking to prove claims of insurance fraud and falsifying business records and holding individual of these defendants accountable, including the former president and Donald Trump Jr. and Eric Trump. Jake. Now to the witness list, there are 188 people on it, but certainly Trump and Eric and Don Jr. stand out. Yeah, the New York Attorney General's office says in their case in chief, they're going to put on 28 witnesses on that list. Donald Trump, Eric Trump, Donald Trump Jr., 
Ivanka Trump and Michael Cohen, among others. Cohen is the one that kicked off this whole investigation when he testified before Congress in April of 2019 and made the allegations that the Trump organization inflated the value of their assets. So he's going to be one of their witnesses as well as some others. Now, Trump's side is saying that they're going to call as many as 127 possible witnesses, including Trump. So saying that he wants to testify in this case in his own defense. So, of course, we never know who's going to take the stand until it comes down to that moment. But we're looking at a number of witnesses here and many of them with the last name Trump. All right, Kara Scannell, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Joining us to discuss Nick Ackerman, a former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. Nick, would you be surprised if Trump or his eldest sons were called to testify? Or are you expecting that? Oh, I'm expecting that. If I were the AG, I would pop them up on the stand almost immediately. Uh, because I would expect on a number of these issues, they're going to wind up asserting their Fifth Amendment privilege, claiming that a truthful answer would tend to incriminate them. I mean, particularly Donald Trump, uh, one of the issues that's left in this case is the falsification of business records. And he's already under indictment for that issue um, in, the, in uh, Manhattan. So I think all of these people are going to have to take the Fifth Amendment or get up there and lie or put themselves in legal jeopardy of being subsequently indicted. I keep in mind, this is a civil case. It's not like a criminal case um, where the a government can't call the defendant to the witness stand. In a civil case, uh, you can use the assertion of the Fifth Amendment privilege as an adverse inference against the person who asserts that privilege. So I would expect absolutely that the AG is going to call all of those witnesses. So on, uh, on his social media site, Truth Social, Trump said something along the lines of, and I'm paraphrasing, but it clearly said in the financial statement form, you know, don't rely on what we're saying in this document for accuracy. Can you do that? Can you put, a, can you put in your financial form don't don't think this is true. None of this is accurate. Well, let me just add to that. You can't put that in your financial form and then go ahead and make the blatant lies that Trump made in these financial forms. Um, you cannot get a pass for criminal liability by simply telling people you can't really rely on this when you know darn well that what you're saying is a total falsehood. Uh, the judge addressed that issue in his opinion this week and basically blew that out of the water. That does not take him anywhere uh, in terms of um, ameliorating his liability on this case. How likely is it, do you think, that the Trump organization will be dissolved? I mean, this is, this is a big company with a lot of properties, a lot of assets. Well, I think it is. There's a good, strong likelihood it will be dissolved. Uh, they've already taken away their business licenses in the state of New York, which is absolutely huge in terms of being able to conduct normal business. Uh, they're going now for disgorgement of profits up to $250 million, possibly more. Uh, once those numbers start racking up, there's only one place that the uh, state is going to be able to get the funds uh, to make for that, to get that money. And that's going to be through the sale of, of all these various assets. So, yes, I think that they are in big trouble. 
um, and that the Trump organization is likely to be dissolved and the assets seized. Could the ruling in this case impact any other cases that Trump is fighting right now? I recognize this is a civil case, and, and the big cases, the 91 counts and the four indictments are criminal, but can somebody use evidence of you were found liable of fraud here as evidence in a, in a criminal case? No, because the standard is completely different. Uh, the standard of proof here is more likely than not. The standard in a criminal case is beyond a reasonable doubt. But what they can use is any of the testimony. If it turns out that Donald Trump or his sons do not take the Fifth Amendment and they do testify, they're subject to cross-examination and all of that testimony could be used in criminal cases. So that's where the real danger is for any of them actually getting up and testifying. What are the odds that they don't take the fifth? Um, I'd say pretty strong. I mean, if I were their lawyer, there's no way I would ever let them do anything but take the Fifth right. Amendment. That's However, don't forget, Trump, Trump did um, testify in his last deposition in this case. Nick Ackerman, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, how the drama on Capitol Hill could impact millions of Americans' paychecks and pantries. That's next. Republican infighting is about to shut down the federal government in two days. But hey, why not? Since members of Congress are going to get paid no matter what, which I'm sure is reassuring to you. Never mind the millions of government employees and possibly U.S. service members who will not get a paycheck. Rest assured, your members of Congress are going to be fine. On Capitol Hill right now, some lawmakers are still looking for a last-minute miracle of sorts to pass a spending bill and avoid the shutdown. Others are focused instead on their first impeachment inquiry hearing into President Biden. The GOP-led House Oversight Committee is trying to link the president's bank account to his son Hunter's business dealings, despite no public evidence that anyone has seen yet that the president in any way personally received any money himself. The Republicans' own witnesses today said this. I do not believe that the current evidence would support articles of impeachment. That is something that an inquiry has to establish. I am not here today to even suggest that there was corruption, fraud, or any wrongdoing. In my opinion, more information needs to be gathered and assessed before I would make such an assessment. Now, they said that in support of an inquiry. They said the inquiry will look for more information. But Republicans in today's hearing came armed with all sorts of accusations, and we thought you would appreciate CNN's fact-checker-in-chief, Daniel Dale, taking a look at them. Good to see you again, Daniel. You too, Jake. Thank you so much. So House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer today said that the committee uncovered this. The Bidens and their associates created over 20 shell companies and raked in over $20 million between 2014 and 2019. Now, the Bidens and their associates created over 20 shell companies, raking in over $20 million. And their associates is doing a lot of work there, I would think. It is, Jake. This is one of those cases where you have to listen very closely to the language the politician is using. So the Bidens and their associates, why not just say Joe Biden got $20 million? Well, because they found no evidence that any of these millions, even a single penny of it, went to Joe Biden directly. You go a step further. Why not just say the Biden family? Why, why the Bidens and their associates? Well, because millions of this money, we don't know exactly how much, but millions went to people who weren't even part of the family, let alone Joe Biden himself. And 
And I'll add that the Washington Post also did a pretty solid analysis where they questioned the use of the phrase shell companies, noting that many of these companies seem to have legitimate, publicly stated business interests. They weren't, you know, shells created for some mysterious reason. So, uh, so narrowly accurate, the number, the 20 million figure seems right, but who it applies to, I think, is the, is the real question. And, and just to be clear, President Biden, the evidence right now is that of the $20 million, he got... He got zero. None. Yeah. Okay, well, that seems significant. Yeah. Let's uh, look at another claim from uh, uh, Chairman Comer about what the committee uncovered. Two additional wires sent to Hunter Biden that originated in Beijing from Chinese nationals. This happened when Joe Biden was running for president of the United States, and Joe Biden's home is listed as the beneficiary address. Now, I learned... From Republicans in Congress, I think I know the answer to this, yes. that Hunter Biden was living in Delaware with his dad at that time, I think, right? Yeah, so I don't know like precisely which days Hunter Biden was living or not living at that house. We do know, though, that he has lived at times at that house. And that's the, the benign, quite plausible explanation for the presence of Joe Biden's address on those wire transfers that Chairman Comer didn't mention. We, we know that he lived there. We know that he li- listed that address on his driver's license. And Hunter Biden's lawyer, Abby Lowell, said the reason Joe Biden's address was listed on those transfers was because that was the address that Hunter Biden used to open the bank account where that money went. And he listed that address, Lowell said, because it was his only permanent address at the time. So yes, Joe Biden's house. But again, that is not evidence, let alone definitive evidence, that Joe Biden got any of that money. Although we should underscore that at the Republican debates, when Trump said or the, that... Hun- the, general, the general election debate. General, I'm sorry, yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the general election debate yeah. when, in 2020, when Trump said that Hunter got Chinese money and Joe Biden said, no, he didn't. Yes. Trump was right and Joe Biden was wrong. That's right. Joe Biden was wrong in that case in 2020. Okay, important to point out. Let's listen to one more claim Republicans brought up in today's hearings. We already know the president took bribes from Burisma. I also want to add, betraying your country is treason. We know that Biden took bribes from Burisma? What? We, we do not know that, Jake. That, as you know, is a completely unproven allegation. It is a secondhand allegation that was made by an FBI informant. He told the FBI he had heard the CEO of Burisma say that four years prior. So the informant said it in 2020. He claimed he had heard this in 2016. But even that FBI document that memorialized this claim said that the informant could not provide any further opinion on the veracity or truthfulness of that claim. So again, it's an allegation. There is not one shred of evidence to date corroborating it. I'll go one further. The, the, the guy from Burisma said $5 million to one Biden, yeah. $5 million to another Biden. They never even said Joe Biden. Correct. So it could have been Frankie Biden. It could have. Sally Biden. It could have been any Biden. Or it could have been none. Correct. All right. Well, more to uncover and more to unpack and more lies to, to truth. Daniel Dale, thank you so much. Also on the Hill, While many lawmakers won't have to think twice about how they're going to pay their bills or put food on their tables if the government shuts down, none of them are going to have to. They still get paid no matter what. There still are millions of Americans who will not be paid. And CNN's Miguel Marquez has more on the real-life consequences that come with the government shutdown. Can I get some apples? Yes. Veronica Stowe feeds two teenagers, a seven-year-old, her mother, herself, and her husband, six total, relying mostly on a -a once-a-month payment from the federal government's SNAP, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. So you get SNAP benefits once a month. Does that, does that last you? Does that buy food for an entire month? Sometimes it does. Like right now, I have $200 left. The month is almost 
gone. Her next SNAP payment scheduled for October 16th. The government has guaranteed it through the month in case of a shutdown. But after that, it's unclear. What are you doing different today in case the government shuts down? Well, I cut it back on how we eat, how much we eat. We buy the same amount of food. We cook it differently. Instead of fries, we stew it. So you can use it as a soup or broth so it can last longer. You have to make cutbacks. Spaghetti. She's also stocking up at a Brooklyn food pantry. This place is critical because when I run out of food at home, what am I really, where am I going? The campaign against hunger saw food insecurity skyrocket during the pandemic, the current migration crisis adding even more pressure. We are feeding um, 12 to 14,000 families per week, and so that's equate to over 20 million meals. 20 million meals a year. During the last government shutdown, they quickly saw a new group of New Yorkers in need of food. All the government workers are going to come in. We had, from the TSA, we had the hospitals. We had so many families that were in need of food in 2018, 2019, that it just broke the safety net. The shutdown in 2018 was also a drag on shops whose customers pay for food with government benefits. Nationwide, the cost of a lengthy shutdown, enormous. The 2018 shutdown disrupted $18 billion in federal spending. An estimated $3 billion was never recovered, denting the nation's GDP lower by 0.02%. The nation's airports and air travel vulnerable during a shutdown. The 2018 shutdown, 34 days, the longest ever. A fight over then-President Trump's border wall funding saw TSA agents, air traffic controllers, and many other federal employees working without pay till the dispute was resolved. Mentally, it can be very draining on any human being, not just officers or employees for the federal agency. To not know when you'll be able to feed your family or provide the next meal or be able to provide education and childcare for your children, if that is your situation, is very frustrating. Alexis Maddox, who works for TSA and the union representing federal employees, says most government workers live paycheck to paycheck. Paid every two weeks, the next payday, tomorrow, Friday, September 29th. When will that next check come? That uncertainty producing the most anxiety. We are bracing for the worst. We're telling officers to save a little extra money, uh, put some things to the side. If it's not a necessity, please don't, don't spend in excess what you don't need because we don't know. Uh, here we are at a very busy LaGuardia airport where employees here are concerned that not only at this airport, but across the country, that the shutdown could affect services at places like this. They also said, everybody we spoke to in this story said they go to work every day, they get their job done. Sometimes they don't agree with what they have to do, and they hope Congress does the same. Jake? I wonder what a national referendum would look like about members of Congress currently get paid during a government shutdown, service members don't. Would you support flipping that? during a government shutdown. Members of Congress don't get paid, but service members do. I bet that would be like a 99% support for that law. What do, what do you think? I, 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 I'll take the bet where the, the Congress doesn't get paid and 
you can take the other side. No, no, <laughs> that's not that's not what I'm proposing. You go, Marquez. <laughs> oh, I see. Oh, I see. I'm on the losing end. Okay. Thank you so much. Appreciate <laughs> it. Coming up, CNN's own Dr. Sanjay Gupta on the front lines of, of one of the largest crises impacting young Americans. What seven uh, for, uh, surgeons general today told Sanjay about social media, mental health, and young people. Adams, who's on Twitter like all the time. In our health lead, in what is becoming one of the greatest public health challenges of our time, mental health, a crisis that has been, of course, exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. And in May, the Surgeon General highlighted another factor warning about the harmful effects that social media can have on young Americans' mental health. Today, the current U.S. Surgeon General and six of his predecessors held a discussion moderated by CNN's Dr. Sanjay Gupta at Dartmouth College to discuss all the challenges Americans, especially young Americans, are facing in this public health crisis. Even as the country has spent more on health care than ever before, our mental health has been steadily and sadly declining for two decades now. When the pandemic hit, we knew its impact would extend far beyond our physical health. The virus, the isolation, the loss of loved ones. It was like throwing gas onto an already roaring flame. I'm so concerned about our children because there is uh, an epidemic, if you will, of mental health challenges that they've been facing. The latest numbers, about 42% of high schoolers say they constantly feel sad or hopeless. That's up more than 50% from 1999. We are crying, we are mourning the loss of a student, of a peer, of a best friend, of a daughter. A recent survey found that more than 40% of undergrads have considered dropping out, largely because of mental health and emotional stress. 41% of undergrads reported overall depression, and 14% reported suicidal ideation within the past year. When I heard about the first one, it really hit, and then another one happened, and then another one happened, and then one happened yesterday, and I just don't know what to do anymore. While we are used to hearing from the Surgeon General about things like smoking or opioids, all the living Surgeons General have come together here at Dartmouth to take on what they say is now one of the biggest public health challenges of our time, mental health, especially among this younger generation. And I have to look at my three teenagers every day and know that I'm not handing them a better world than the world that was left to me. And a lot of that is because of our failure to really focus on mental health and to do the hard things that it's going to take to uh, actually um, overcome this mental health crisis that we're in. A clarion call to hopefully protect our very future. Jake, I got to tell you, this is only the second time all the Surgeons General have gotten together like this, which gives you some idea of just the importance. You know, tobacco, opioids, that's what you typically think of them talking about. Mental health, that's, that's sort of the big priority right now. And we're at your alma mater, Jake, here at Dartmouth, just outside Dartmouth Hall. And part of the reason we're here is, as you know, Jake, this is a campus that's been hit really hard. There were at least four students who died by suicide over a two-year period. You can just imagine what that does to a university community. The new president here, President Bylock, has made mental health and and addressing some of these issues the number one priority of of her tenure. So more than lip service, hopefully it leads to some action here, Jake. Yeah, I mean, it's it's obviously um, something important, I I say, as a, a trustee of Dartmouth, 
uh, at uh, Dartmouth, but it's but it's a nationwide uh, epidemic. High schools, yeah. elementary schools, colleges, uh, graduate schools. What sort of solutions did the Surgeons General talk about? Um, specifically to, to anyone who might be struggling with their mental health who's watching right now or, or someone who might have a friend or family member struggling? Well, th- there were a few things that really jumped out. One is that there's, there's a system problem here. I mean, there's still a lot of stigma attached to it. It's been that way since the first Surgeon General that we were talking to was in office, you know, 30 years ago. Primary care doctors being able to be emboldened and empowered to screen for this so there's not such a, spe- a, a sort of specialization uh, which can be important in medicine but also make certain specialties hard to access. There needs to be more at the primary care level actually screening for this. But there, there is something I think everybody can do to your point. If you see someone who's in mental health crisis, most people have no idea what to do. If you see someone who's in a cardiac arrest, you know to call 911 and start pushing on the chest. But if someone's obviously in mental health crisis, what do you do? Uh, the Surgeon General, Vic Murthy, the current Surgeon General, he talked about that specifically. Keep those people in our mind who are struggling because they become our sources of motivation but also empathy toward others. And if you think about the people in your life who you know are struggling, you also know that it's hard to tell from the outside mm-hmm. how they're doing. Small moments of human connection make a huge difference. These, these conversations, crucially important, Jake. Thank you uh, for making this, putting this on the show. So I think it makes a really, a really big difference. Oh, obviously I would do that, Sanjay. Uh, obviously I think the world of you and uh, I think the world of Dartmouth, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Same. Thanks so much. And, and a reminder, if you or someone you care about needs help, please call or text 988 to reach the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Again, 988. Save it as a favorite in your phone. 988. There is help for you. There is love for you. And you deserve it. We're back in a moment. Our Barry Lee, that's what we call stories we don't think are getting enough attention. Could there be a break in an unsolved mystery that has stumped the FBI for more than half a century? In 1971, D.B. Cooper hijacked a flight from Portland, Oregon, demanding a ransom of $200,000 cash. With the money and a parachute strapped to him, Cooper jumped from the plane into mystery. He's never been seen since. The FBI officially closed the case in 2016, but an amateur investigator is now suing the FBI over a key piece of evidence he says could crack the case wide open. And Eric Eulis is with us now. He's independently researched, investigated, and written about the case, and he's suing the FBI for access to a clip on the tie Cooper wore the night of the hijacking. Eric, how could that tie clip solve the mystery? Well, the tie clip uh, possesses a, a metal spindle that is currently in the closed position, but in all likelihood was open at some point uh, while it was in the possession of D.B. Cooper himself, uh, therefore would have DNA on it. And I've discussed this with a DNA retrieval expert, and the d- DNA tr- retrieval expert concurs that this may well possess an uncontaminated full profile for D.B. Cooper, even though it's actually been 52 years. Why won't they give it to you? It seems, I mean, why, what do they have to lose? As from what I can tell, they have nothing to lose. It's actually part of the mystery here. Uh, it would be nice if they just played ball and just uh, gave myself and a DNA expert uh, access to the tie while it remains in their possession there, in their custody, 
for 30 minutes or an hour or so, and then uh, we'll expend private resources and see what we can come up with. But uh, thus far, they've been unwilling to play ball. Uh, so ultimately led to me filing the lawsuit in March to try to force access to the tie, if you will. You plan to research the area where the money was located in 1980. What are you hoping your search will uncover? Uh, specifically the parachute and perhaps something else. I am absolutely convinced that there were a couple of errors made on behalf of the investigation that the FBI was involved with. And I think that it's very likely that D.B. Cooper landed very near where a portion of his ransom was found eight years later in 1980. Uh, That's an area that's never been searched by the FBI. So that is the area that I am searching right now. I've got 50 acres that I've targeted specifically, and I feel very confident that Something is out there. Uh, at a minimum, D.B. Cooper's parachute was left behind. I can't see the guy taking that out with him once he lands. What's your theory uh, about what happened? I'm absolutely convinced he survived. I think he temporarily buried the money. Uh, I think he came back at a later date and retrieved the money, the $6,000 that was later found notwithstanding. I think that was simply an oversight because presumably he did this under the cover of darkness. And as to what happened after that, your guess is as good as mine. I'm just not sure. Uh, he has managed, obviously, to remain the this has managed to remain the only unsolved skyjacking in U.S. history. I think for a reason, and a big part of that reason is because the guy simply never talked about it. FBI Director Christopher Ray, if you guys aren't doing this, why won't you just let Eric do it? I don't understand. Eric Ulis, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Jake. Up next, the special salute moments ago for a top U.S. general who spent decades serving his country. In our national lead, the retirement chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, walked out of the Pentagon this afternoon to a round of applause. It is a tradition. It's called the clap out. It's a way to honor senior Pentagon officials on their last day of service. Millie's official farewell ceremony is tomorrow after four years of service as chairman of the Joint Chiefs and four decades in the U.S. military and initially entering the service in 1980. This news just in, former President Donald Trump will not try to move his Fulton County, Georgia case to federal court. This surprise in a court filing just filed. Wolf Blitzer is going to pick up the breaking news coverage next in the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.